Hello, my fellow fallible humans. My name is Tanya McIntyre. I'm an addiction recovery facilitator with SMART. And SMART is an acronym. It stands for Self-Management and Recovery Training. That is an evidence-based program. It's an alternative recovery path to the more common 12-step programs of NA and AA. And I co-founded Red Roof Recovery as an addiction recovery program that's founded on the principles of cognitive behavioral therapies similar to that used by SMART. So what is cognition anyway? It sounds like a very difficult word, doesn't it? But it's really just thought. So it's thinking therapies. But you know what? There are literally hundreds of tools of recovery to choose from. The key is to find something that works for you. And then once you do, grab on and do more of it, assuming that it's something good for you, of course. On today's episode of Red Roof Recovery, I am joined by my best friend, my business partner, and my marriage partner of more than 30 years, Lancelot. Hello, my love. Thank you for being here, sweetheart. You're welcome. So today, we are talking about why there might be some reasons that people likely fail in their struggle with any habit or addiction. Now, you lived through my addictions with me. Thanks for sticking around. I saw you fail many times. You did indeed. And you it didn't uh, falter your uh, stoicism to stand by me. Thank you. I'm so grateful for that. Wow. I'm quite stubborn. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're still here with me. Um, and I wanted to, you know, I'm a big uh, fan of someone called Dr. David Burns. You, really? <laughs> you hear me talk about him a lot. He's an American psychiatrist and considered by some to be a pioneer in the development of cognitive therapies. So Dr. Burns uh, considers that there may be a few main reasons why people are likely to fail in their struggle with any habit or addiction. And when I suggest this to people, they seem puzzled by that. I can understand why. Mm-hmm. We're taught that addictions are all negative. Mm-hmm. So what are the positives? Well, the advantages to an addiction, um, it can be rewarding. And the reward is usually immediate. So, for instance, um, I will quote another one of my favorite people. He's uh, the founding president of SMART, actually, Dr. Joe Gerstein. And he says, an addiction is an addiction is an addiction. It doesn't matter what the addiction is. It tickles the same part of the brain. And that is the dopamine reward axis that I talk about a lot. It's the inability to regulate uh, healthy doses of dopamine. So the advantages uh, are rewarding. The reward is immediate, right? We're getting that hit of dopamine. So if you take, for instance, an eating disorder, someone who's binging on food, it can be soothing to indulge in your favorite foods, especially if you're feeling depressed, anxious, or bored. It's immediate gratification. The moment that food hits your tongue, it's immediate pleasure. And I used to feel that way with uh, my favorite scotches, right? I was a, I pretended to be a connoisseur of single malt scotch for scotch a while. Scotch and brandy. Scotch and brandy. And it was an immediate pleasure the moment I took the first sip. That I can understand. Mm-hmm. That first sip and the whole pleasure you get from it. Mm-hmm. It's surely somewhere in your, in the cognition you knew that in the morning, it wouldn't be pleasurable. Right? I know. It's a paradox. 
It's the paradox, honey, of addictions. There, there We're all a, still trying to figure that out. A disconnect here. <laughs> yeah. So if we go back to eating, um, it might give you something to look forward to. Or it could be maybe even the most pleasurable or maybe even the greatest reward you might have in your life. Maybe your only true pleasure in life. And the desire to eat is also a core biological drive, of course. Uh, lots of benefits to overeating. If you're overweight, you may be subconsciously or even consciously putting up a wall to ward off people who might otherwise be attracted to you. I've heard that a lot from people. Mm -hmm. Overeating and, um, you know, feeling secure, being overweight, it might keep you safe, especially if you've been hurt or rejected or maybe even abused by someone you loved and trusted in the past. But again, with the eating, yeah, I mean, I love eating. I love cooking. Mm, because I, I love, love your cooking. I'm because so I love eating. You love cooking. However, I try to balance what I eat with what I do. Because I've been overweight in the past. Not grossly overweight, but overweight. And you don't feel good. Mm. So, yeah, there's a, again, there's a, there's, I can understand the pleasure of doing something. But there seems to be a disconnect between the pleasure that you're getting and the consequences the you, you yeah. know that's coming. And again, the paradox of addictions is, of course, we, we drink, drug, and behave in harmful substances behaviors for one of two reasons. Generally, it's to either increase pleasure or reduce pain. Sometimes both. I was doing it for both reasons. So again, it's, uh, it's quite the conundrum. Mm -hmm. And then another um, benefit of the, well, not really a benefit, the disadvantage of change is uh, a driver yeah, to keep you hate change. in an addiction. Absolutely. So the benefits of an addiction are magnified by the many disadvantages of trying to change. Right, we've created multi-billion dollar industries to keep feeding people quick fixes for problems in life. Whether you're stressed, depressed, overweight, we've got the, the cure for you, right? Coming simple, soon. Simple solutions for complex beings. Right. Doesn't normally work. Yeah. So giving up any habit or addiction is a tremendous disadvantage. Yeah, well, as you've put it, it, when you said goodbye the last time, four years ago, to alcohol, it was like losing a friend. Absolutely. Someone that has been by your side since you were a teenager. Yeah, I felt the same way giving up smoking, cigarettes. I loved smoking. To the I, tune of like a pack, pack and a half a day habit. Um, I smoked as much as you. And I know, you gave it up. No problemo. Mm. Yes, that was annoying. <laughs> so is, is there... <laughs> is there somewhere in the literature that you've been through? Literature. Ooh, literature. That, that says some people more because I've given up alcohol with you. Mm -hmm. I gave up smoking when you said you don't sound good. Mm. When I was sleeping, you said I, I was wheezing and you don't sound good. You should go out smoking. I gave that up. So I've given a whole bunch of stuff up with... No problem. No problems. Nope. So is in the literature, are there 
people like yourself that are more prone to addiction? Well, there is, that's the theory. Um, you know, there's still so many unknown variables around addictions. Um, but the theory, one of the theories is that it's um, a disorder of our brain being uh, unable to regulate appropriate amounts of dopamine to live in a healthy way. I, so there I, is that. Yeah, I read a little bit lately when I was trying to find out the difference between an addiction and an obsession and a compulsion. But one of the things they said about an addiction was that there seems to be an association where people with, who are deemed having an addiction problem have lower dopamine levels to start off with. Right, exactly. It's, it's, um, it's a deficiency. Yeah. So, a chemical deficiency. And, you know, there are still people on the other side of the fence of that, right? It's, um, I don't think any science should be fixed. Exactly. Science is evolving all the time. And people, thankfully, are working, you know, on developing theories into facts, for sure. Mm -hmm. But that is uh, what we suspect, is that it's, um, well, if you go by Dr. Gabor Matte, too, the Canadian doctor who's um, very busy on the speaker circuit now after his book, in the realm of hungry ghosts hit the bestseller list. So I'm grateful that um, he's starting to educate people to say, you know, we need to stop asking why the addiction and start asking why the pain. When he was a doctor, he said, it broke my heart to see five-year-olds coming in with asthma. He said, that's completely stress-related, chronic illness. But I didn't have time to ask why a five-year-old was stressed. All I could do was write a prescription for a stress hormone and give the kid a puffer. That's, that's one of the drawbacks of Canadians' universal healthcare system. There's no time. You're on an assembly line. Yeah. I think that's every healthcare system. However, that's what we have. But a good and bad. But what I'm wondering as well is, I come from a, a family of three boys. Mm. And as we've just said... I have no problem giving stuff up. If I don't find it's advantageous to me or it makes the, your cost-benefit analysis, I can really enjoy myself in the evening and suffer in the morning. It's like, no, I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. like, it's just not worth it. So there are three boys all up in the same household and there's three and a half years between us. So bump, 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 very quickly. My middle brother has suffered with addictions since he was a teenager. And my youngest brother, I worried about him sometimes when we were in Mallorca mm -hmm. with his use of alcohol to temper stress. Alleviate stress. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you've got three people with the same genetics in the same household with three totally different outcomes mm -hmm. from that. Well, and that calls into question the whole hypothesis around genetics being connected to addictions. So I don't think it's genetics at all. I think it's more You think it's trauma. more situational? Situational and trauma. Mm -hmm. Which is a situation, if you find yeah. yourself. And how you deal with trauma, I would imagine. Absolutely. And, again, the ability to regulate the proper doses of chemicals in our brain. Our brain is a chemical organ running on about 80 different chemicals. And the four that we talk about the most in our society are the endorphins, which are the painkillers, um, the oxytocin, mm -hmm. which is uh, 
Mm, what does that do? I can't remember. Probably pain relief and uh, making you feel good, the feel-good chemical. Serotonin is the love. They call that the love hormone. And then we've got uh, dopamine, which is our motivational um, pleasure-seeking. That's the one that drives us uh, to seek out what we need and like. That's what keeps us alive, basically. Dopamine keeps us motivated, productive. Okay, so we live in a society that tends to thrive on the instant gratification. Yes, even more so now in our digital age, everything is at our fingertips. Yeah, yeah. We used to have to, when I was young, I can remember that when higher purchase... Please don't tell the story of walking to school no, no, uphill uh, for I can a mile when barefoot higher purchase first came in. <laughs> I didn't know anyone with a credit card when I was a kid. Right. They didn't exist. Higher purchase just came in. You basically had to put money away to buy something. Then we got credit cards, then we got phone apps, and then we got... And everything seems to have moved to... I want it now, and I'm going to have it now, mm -hmm. which must drive into addiction somehow. Oh, I'm sure it does. So we've created multi-billion dollar industries, especially around weight loss. That seems to be the big one. I kind of lost a lot of respect for Oprah Winfrey when she got involved in that industry. So, you know, we've created this industry selling people on the hope that they can lose weight. Even though we know that if we want to lose weight, what do we have to do? We have to do two things that we don't like to do. Cut out the foods we love, the ones that are making us fat, and go and do some exercise. Neither of which sounds very good. Like, I don't want to have to do that. I, I want to have my three cookies a day <laughs> without having to go for a 1K walk. And also, if you are... A larger person have been a larger person for a long time there's a lot of evidence now that you have to go a long time before you see any type of right you see the results any type yeah, of result exactly so there's start, no instant gratification coming there's no anytime instant soon. gratification yeah so we know that uh, most people with weight challenges don't want to exercise they don't want to reduce the amount they eat but they keep buying and trying all the new diet fads and pills and we're also constantly tempted with delicious foods, right? We're now exposed to about 3,000 messages a day because we were in front of a screen for most of our day. Mm -hmm. uh, so even if you're kind of absorbing this stuff through osmosis, the 3,000 advertising messages a day, that's more than our parents saw in a lifetime. And we are now exposed to them every day. And what are these messages telling us? You're not good enough. Buy something. You're not slim enough. You're not hairless enough, right? You got to go out and buy something or take something to feel better. So why would anyone want to trade in joy and gratification for discipline and deprivation? Because it's far more rewarding. Mm. Yeah, but again, that reward is in the distance. So what, what that brings to mind the marshmallow test. <laughs> Do you remember the marshmallow test from the I'm, 60s? I remember you talking about it. Well, you go on to YouTube, which is now the second most watched medium in the world, and you just Google or, or do the search on YouTube for um, marshmallow test. And you will see that they brought kids 
um, preschoolers for the most part. I think they were probably about five or six years old. And they would give them one marshmallow, and the instruction was, uh, you can eat this marshmallow right now, or you can wait until I return, and I will bring another marshmallow with me, and then you can have two marshmallows. Of course, the, the critical element there was that if they decided to eat the marshmallow instantly, they wouldn't get the second marshmallow. It was fascinating to what go watch it on YouTube it's fascinating to see the kids and what they do to try not to eat that marshmallow it's hilarious what if Anita didn't eat the marshmallow yes and of course it was an outcome study so they followed these kids for the next 20 years and what do you think happened with the kids who could not delay the gratification the kids who had to eat the marshmallow before the second one arrived I've presume their life wasn't as smooth as the people who... Ding, 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 you are correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So the people who were unable, the children who were unable to delay their gratification, they had, um, on the socioeconomic scale, they would be considered on the lower rungs of that. And of course, you know, being in the achievement-oriented society that we are, everything is measured by uh, you know, the, the stat, what's your status? Where do you fit in, in the rung of society? I had that experience when we moved to the UK. I only lasted seven months because, again, mired in the bureaucracy of government, uh, not mm -hmm. recognizing our marriage license <clears throat> from Canada. Uh, we had to, uh, I had to find a job that would pay me cash under the table. Not an easy thing to do. Yep, the nail store. The only thing I could qualify for was a manageress, I was called back in those days, um, uh, in a nail shop. So, you know, the fiberglass nails were becoming popular among the elite. I remember them well. <laughs> you, you actually helped me out a couple of Saturdays and made some pretty good tips, as I recall. I was the highest tips person in the salon. <laughs> you were. Yes, the British don't like to tip, but they, uh, you were certainly popular. And when you finally came in to bring me to lunch one day, and of course I was, uh, I was the manageress, right? And because of my accent, I couldn't be pigeonholed. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you came in to pick me up for lunch, and I said to Buffy and Muffy and whatever, whoever else was there, who, you know, I'd been working with them for months. And then I said, oh, you guys, you finally get to meet my husband. Lance, this is Buffy, Muffy, and... Coco or whatever they were, and uh, immediately it was like, as soon as you open your mouth, it was like somebody turned off a light switch. And I went out and I said, what the heck was that? Did you feel that? And you laughed. What did you say? I said, <clears throat> they've been able to pigeonhole you because you're married to a working class person. Right? You also said, I buried beneath me. And I could not believe it. I thought when I went to the UK with you to potentially live there, I thought, how different could it be, right? Canada was a British colony. La, 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 la. Oh, my God, it was really different. And, of course, that was in 1992. 1992. Mm -hmm. What is this thing? Oh, how's that? Except it's all on money. What you, right? drive, what you drive, what you wear, the phone you have. Mm -hmm. where... And, again, it's that drive for... Uh, instant gratification to be accepted 
Right. So you want to drive the nice car and have the nice clothes and the mm. right phone and go to the right restaurant because yeah. you'll seem to be successful and it it gives you that gratification that you're one of one of the top tribe. Mm-hmm. Even if it's not making you happy. Exactly. And guess what? We're off topic again. Really? I think we Unusual. did. We, we slipped off the slope there. So we're talking about the challenges around um, why it might be challenging to give up an addiction, to invoke some kind because of change. It, because it's nice. It's nice. Yeah, there are lots of advantages. And giving up an addiction also means experiencing grief because of losing the most supportive relationship in your life, right? It was the best friend for me, um, both cigarettes and uh, other drugs and booze. You've known your best friends a lot longer than you knew me. Right, yeah, a lot of comfort in that. And, you know, my addiction was providing a level of security and comfort. What, what am I going to do without it? Right? Because I, I really did have myself convinced uh, when it wasn't spiraling out of control, when I was still managing my addictions, uh, still felt that I was in control of them, that it was providing me a level of comfort and support and security. In, in what way? I know, it's, it's quite the paradox. Now that I'm, I've been um, sustaining my sobriety since 2018, uh, I can look at this now because I've done so much work around, you know, I've, I've actually stopped asking why because there's really no answer other than trauma and my inability to cope and you know, just the instant gratification that came with addictions. I could pop a pill and I knew in 10, 20 minutes I'd be feeling great. I could have a couple of shots of scotch or tequila or vodka or whatever. A suit of armor that you put on when you... Because when I met you, we used to go to these trade fairs and you would walk up to anyone and, you know... It was all false bravado. I was always on something. Well, this is what I'm saying is... It seemed to be a suit of armor that you put on or a Absolutely. mask. Absolutely, yep. That made you feel better and made you feel somewhat invincible. Mm-hmm, yeah. Hard to give up. It was very hard, yep. And finally, I want to look at the fact that um, it's also worth looking at our core values. So I never really considered doing that until I was introduced to SMART. Um, my initial entry into Recovery started in 2009 <clears throat> when we were living in Mallorca, Spain. Mm-hmm. And again, mired in bureaucracy uh, with the government who wouldn't recognize our marriage certificate. Um, I had far too much time on my hands. And I discovered, of course, which I was uh, excited to discover that wine was cheaper than water there. And brandy is two of my favorite things, wine and brandy, cheaper than water. Mm-hmm. So I was having a great time, and it didn't take me long to find somebody to supply my uh, other drug habit as well. So when I found, and I was relapsing all the time, even though I went into rehab, 30-day program, came out, did AANA meetings for eight years, I was relapsing every year or two. And then when I was introduced to SMART in 2018 and started to direct rational analysis inward and start asking myself, well, what exactly do I want for my future? I couldn't even really think that far ahead when I was, I think I was uh, falling deeper into addictions because I didn't want to look 
to the future. I didn't feel like I had a future. I wanted to just die most times. I was slowly killing myself every day. So how did my core values fit into my addiction? I never really gave that much thought until I found SMART. Because our addictions could actually be re representing something positive about us. And I think for me, I spent so many years um, feeling guilt and shame around my addictions and hiding them that to consider that it might represent something positive about me was a foreign concept. I couldn't wrap my head around that at all. Well, normally it would be considered an oxymoron because addictions are always bad. Well, that's our societal... That's what society tells you. Mm-hmm. Addiction, bad. Yeah. Abstaining, good. Mm -hmm. There is no good in addiction, which what we've been discussing is obviously wrong. And we, we talked about that level of discrimination that exists in our society around um, addictions. When someone finds out that you're recovering from addictions or you're even addicted, um, you're also labeled and judged based on the addiction or the condition Right? So if I show up to the hospital and I'm deemed to be anorexic or bulimic, it's a little more acceptable than having a substance use disorder or an alcohol use disorder or what they used to call a substance abuser. Uh, that, thankfully, that's changing. Those labels are starting to soften up in society, which is nice to see. But yeah, there's a level of discrimination that goes with that as well. Which is why I was looking at the difference between addiction, obsession, and compulsion. We need another 30 minutes. I understand. Yeah. yeah. We've only got four minutes left. Wow. Time, <laughs> time flies. So could our addictions be representing something positive about us? So for someone challenged with an eating disorder, for example, it could show that they're a rebel or maybe a nonconformist who doesn't have to fit into society's values of how people should look or how people should behave. I think there was an element of that with me as well, a bit of a rebel. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to beat the odds, right? I'm, I'm invincible. <laughs> Youth. Yeah, Youth. eating can also be a way to pamper and comfort yourself when you're upset. Yeah, I use drugs and alcohol, do the same thing. Uh, feeding ourselves foods you love, it can be a thought as a form of self-love. Hmm? I think that might be a, from my point of view, that might be a bit of a stretch. Yeah, the well, Dr. David Burns is good at stretching yeah. things and getting the you... The comfort thing I could see. Yeah. Eating without inhibition also shows that you view life as a kind of celebration of your existence. I like that. <laughs> we often think of our addictions as bad habits or weaknesses that we must overcome through increased willpower or greater self-discipline. But in reality, there are a lot of good things about our so-called bad habits and addictions. I know, it's hard to wrap your head around. It is. Mm -hmm. So I have found in my work that when I can bring people to a point of first looking at those advantages of their addictions, they can have less resistance when I suggest that they complete a cost-benefit analysis around their addictions. Oh, so remember, there's... <laughs> well, most people don't, don't look at an addiction, like we said, as having any advantages, because that's what we're told. Mm -hmm. 
So the first key is to define your core values. And smartrecovery.org, you go on there and uh, go into the toolbox tab. There's some great um, exercises there, the fillable PDFs, really good to go through. So do an HOV, a hierarchy of values, and then you can tackle the CBA, the cost-benefit analysis. And there's a difference between feeling better, which can happen spontaneously, and getting better. And getting better happens when we systematically apply and reapply the methods that will lift our mood whenever the need arises. How about that? And we can either learn and change from a state of joy and inspiration, or we can learn and change from a state of disease and despair. So there's always that to consider. And remember, our brain is an operating system. When we fire and wire the same circuits, you know, those habits in our brain, we're building new neural networks and pathways. Cognitive therapies help us use our analytical mind to affect that operating system to serve us in a healthier way. And as I said, our brain is a chemical organ operating at a, on about 80 different chemicals. And that dopamine reward axis is uh, something to worth considering. So email me. I can uh, shoot you those templates for you to work on. Redroofrecovery at gmail.com. Thank you, my darling Lancelot, for being here again. You are my rock. You're welcome, my love. I love you. And I really, really like you. Thanks. So 30 seconds uh, to plug my books, Mindful Wisdom from My Philosopher Dad, Sage Advice from a Single Father. And then during the pandemic, I have, um, I did Daily Wisdom from My Philosopher Dad. They're both available at Amazon.ca. May the force be with you and remember you are the force. <laughs>